Get your day started with a breakfast full of positive music, fun, inspiration and so much more. Rise and shine with Felon DJ. Weekday mornings on Vision. This podcast is made available by Vision Christian Media. Thanks to the generosity of our supporters. Your donation today means great podcasts like this remain available to help people look to God daily. Please make your donation to Visionathon today at vision.org.au. That's why that I can't go through this series we've entitled Living Dangerously without taking you to the book of Job. Job, a man who suffered probably more than any other person in the Bible besides Jesus. Today. 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 Today with Jeff Vines. We are taking the gospel to the world. Pastor, apologist, and Bible teacher. One truth that will be delivered in love and compassion, connecting every one person to all that God has promised them. You make me Today. Today. Today with Jeff Vines. Hi, and welcome to more in our series about living dangerously. And in this message, Pastor Jeff is back in the book of Job, talking about living through tragedy. When life doesn't go the way we planned, it can sometimes be hard to trust God is in control. Through these times, we are called to believe God is not only in charge, but he is also very much involved in our lives. Let's join Pastor Jeff now for today's message. It's great to see you here, it really is. And we would pray that today you would leave incredibly encouraged and it would change your perspective about the way you see the world and your life and how those two things work together. You know, I believe that the Christian faith does indeed require a step of faith. As a matter of fact, I believe in some respects it requires a leap of faith, but not where most of us think about. I don't believe it's a great leap of faith to come to Christ as Savior and Lord of your life. Over the course of our relationship together, we're going to talk about the reliability and the historicity of the Scriptures, what we call the Word of God, the Bible. We're going to look at both the objective and the circumstantial evidence surrounding the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus, that it was a real event, real time, real place. So I believe in coming to Christ does take a step of faith, but it's not a huge leap because of the enormous amount of evidence that seems to point in the direction that God did indeed send his son to this world to die for our sins and bridge the gap that separated us from God and now we can come close to a heavenly father. I do believe it requires a step of faith, but I don't believe it's a big one because of the insurmountable amount of evidence. But there is a step of faith, almost a leap of faith required once you become a, a Christian, a believer. You know what that is? It's this, that when the rug is pulled out from under you, when your life is not going in the direction that you think it should have gone, when you've just lost your husband or your wife, when your children have gone astray, you're worried about them, when your life is literally falling apart, when you've got a disease that you've just discovered, when nothing seems to be going your way, the Bible tells us that we are to be a people who no matter what the situation looks on the outside, 
that we're supposed to believe that God is sovereign, that he is on the throne, and he's still as much involved in your life as he's ever been. And I find that hard. I find it difficult at times in my life when everything's going in an opposite direction to still believe that God is sovereign, that he's on the throne and in control of the world and involved as a loving God in my life. You see, it's one thing to talk about God in control of the world and your pain, philosophically speaking. It's another thing altogether to witness somebody's life where there's an enormous amount of pain where they're supposed to believe that. On Thursday, I attended the funeral of a little baby. It was a, uh, it was a time of pain. As a matter of fact, I don't remember attending a funeral where I felt this much pain in the life of the parents, the grandparents, the family as they came, and this mother who lost her little child. And the pastor who did the funeral did a great job, and he said something to this young mother. It wasn't aimed directly at her. It was said to everyone, but I know he meant it for her. And he made the statement that this little child now is in the arms of God by the grace of God in heaven. And I thought that was a, a really good thing to say. But the other part of me wondered if the mother was thinking this. Okay, that's great that the grace of God now is holding my child in heaven, but where was the grace of God when I needed him to keep my child alive? Surely, if God is sovereign and on the throne and in control, this is not something he would want to happen. Last week, you'll notice I was missing. I'm going to make you feel really sorry for me. I was down at the U.S. Open in Torrey Pines. <laughs> I've got a friend. His name is Brett Mullen. And Brett was the 1975 Junior Amateur American Champion. And because of that, he's been milking it ever since. Every year, he gets six tickets to the U.S. Open, no matter where it is. And I just happen to be a friend of his. <laughs> now, folks, these aren't just tickets that get you in. They get you into the tent where there is free food. Now, I've already told you life ultimately is about free food, right? So I had a great time. I was standing on the 18th green, not literally on it, but beside it, when Tiger Woods sank that 17-foot putt to force it into overtime. I was there on Monday to follow hole by hole the playoff. It was a remarkable experience. But as remarkable as that was, it didn't come close to me getting to know Brett in a way that I had never gotten to know him before. He was being bred to be a U.S. Open champion. He had a father that taught him the game just like Tiger Woods' dad. He won the 1975 Amateur and everything was up from there. And his father, almost on the day that he won that tournament, contracted cancer and was dead within 12 months. And Brett told me the story of how his life just spiraled down. It was one thing after the next. He got married. They had a child. The child was Down syndrome and then contracted diabetes and then from there, leukemia. And then he would go from job to job. He's a sharp businessman and he would grow companies and these companies would prosper. And then he would go from having everything one day to the next day having absolutely nothing to no fault of his own. He was just in these situations where he had business partners who were just not very good. And now at the age of 50, he told me a few months ago that he was told he has Parkinson's. And I saw the tremors and the shakes when I was with him that day or those two days. And there was a part of me that thought, you know, God, would it be just too much to take a couple of these things away? Just a couple if you're sovereign and you're on the throne? It reminds me of Tevier in the movie Fiddler on the Roof. Remember? He's in the barn and he says, would it ruin some divine plan if I were a wealthy man? 
It's bad enough that I have all these problems. Do I have to be poor too? But then the assumption behind the wide question is what gets me. There's an assumption that tells us this. God, if you would just tell me the why, then I could endure the what. That's what G.K. Chesterton said. If you could just tell me the why, then I could endure the what. If you could show me that grand design and grand plan that's going to eventuate and that my suffering is going to cause something wonderful to happen in the lives of others or even in my life, then I would be able to endure it. That's why that I can't go through this series we've entitled Living Dangerously without taking you to the book of Job. Job, a man who suffered probably more than any other person in the Bible besides Jesus. And scholars tell us it's probably one of the oldest books written. Some believe it was written by Moses. So it's almost like the very first thing God wants you to know right out of the chute is this. Don't assume that personal pain is always associated with personal sin. Don't think that just because you've done something wrong, God's coming after you. No, pain is no respecter of persons. Look in Job chapter one, verse one. There was a man in the land of Uz whose name was Job. Now look at what he says about Job. He was what? Blameless and upright and feared God and shunned evil. So here's a guy that's righteous, relatively speaking, upright, blameless, and yet much pain is inflicted on him and his family, proving again that evil and pain and suffering is much more complex than saying that it's because you have sinned against God. Now it's in the course of what happens with Job that we learn this invaluable truth that you've got to get at some point in your life because it will give so much clarity to your life and this world and where God is taking you because he's going to be visited by three friends. As they see Job, what happens? If you know the story, they're terrorized by the pain. I mean, here's a guy who had sores all over his body that he couldn't walk because they were on the bottom of his feet. He couldn't lie down because they were on his side all over, boils. When they see him, they're so terrorized by it, they stop and they just weep and moan out loud and tear their clothes, which is what you did in the Old Testament when you were mourning. When they finally catch up to Job and see him, they remain silent for seven days. They don't say a word. Now, let me just tell you, they are the wisest when they are silent. Because as soon as they start opening their mouths to try to encourage Job, it all becomes disastrous. But in the course of the conversation, you and I learn something about our lives and the sovereignty of God. It's valuable, but it'll come out in the end. As soon as they start opening their mouths to try to encourage Job, it all becomes disastrous. But in the course of the conversation, you and I learn something about our lives and the sovereignty of God. It's valuable, but it'll come out in the end. First of all, let me take you to the first friend, Eliphaz. He's the oldest and the kindest. Now, here's what he says to Job. Now, you think about this. You've lost everything. All right? You've lost your children, your flocks, your herds, your possessions. You're ill. You have these boils all over. You're in constant pain 24-7. It never goes away. And this is what your best friend says to you. He says in Job chapter 4, Job, a spirit glided past my face, and the hair on my body stood on end. It stopped, but I could not tell what it was. A form stood before my eyes, and I heard a hushed voice. Can a mortal be more righteous than God? Can a man be more pure than his maker? Now, every time I read that, I think of a story my friend tells about his experience in seminary. 
He said he had this philosophy professor that was incredibly gifted, very smart. He says he got PhDs the way you and I get a loaf of bread, just one after the next. And he was intimidated in the classroom. And all the students dreaded the midterm and the final because the questions were always difficult. So he says, my friend does, and he's one of the, and he's probably the most intelligent in the class, sharp guy. He gets the test, he looks at the questions, having studied as hard as he knew how, and it dawns on him he doesn't have a clue about what the professor is talking about. And so he's just got to throw down his pencil and pray that God somehow would help him in this final exam. But as he does that, he notices his friend seated to his left that is far less gifted in the intelligence department than he is, is just writing away. Line after line, page after page, paragraph after paragraph. And my friend told me that his friend had not emotionally graduated from junior high school and became involved in what is euphemistically known as padding. It's where you write and write and write everything you know about every topic, hoping that sooner or later you will hit toward the direction of the truth. <laughs> and you're laughing because you've all done it. He said, when his friend got his test paper back, it was the funniest one-liner he's ever seen. In bright, bold red ink, it read, this is not right, this is not even wrong. <laughs> you see, when you make a statement, there are one of two responses you can give, that's right or that's wrong. But if what you've said is so nonsensical, then it doesn't even rise to the dignity of error. <laughs> because to say something is wrong assumes that something's been said. And every time I read this, I think, Eliphaz, this is not right. This is not even wrong. I mean, a spirit glided past my face. My hair, uh, uh, the hair on my body stood upright. In reality, Eliphaz is trying to comfort Job by being mystical. You've had the friend that comes up to you, puts his hand on you and says, wait a minute, I'm getting something. I know why you're in this. And this ticks Job off. He's upset. He says, Eliphaz, in Job chapter 6, if only my anguish could be weighed and all my misery be placed on the scales, it would surely outweigh the sand of the seas. Eliphaz, you're severely underestimating my pain and you think by some philosophical or mystical answer, everything's going to be made okay. And so Eliphaz sits down and next Job says, God, please, in Job chapter 6, verse 24, teach me and I will hold my peace. Cause me to understand. God, don't give me some philosophical general answer. I want realism. Tell me the why, because if you tell me the why, God, I'll be able to endure the what. All right, Eliphaz sits down. Here comes Bildad. Bildad's a little younger and a little less kind. And here's what he says to Job. At least he makes some sense though. Job chapter eight, your words are a blustering wind. He calls Job a windbag. Great friend, eh? Good friend. Ask the former generations and find out what their fathers learned. For we were born only yesterday and know nothing. Will they not bring forth words from their understanding? Now, what Bildad is saying has some truth to it. Now, follow me here. It is true that when you're going through a difficult time and the rug's been pulled out from under you and you don't know where you're going and you don't know how God's involved in all this, that it is helpful to read or to hear somebody or to meet somebody that's experienced what you're experiencing and to learn how they've endured and made it through and how God's worked wonderfully in their lives. That's one of my faults. I read primarily for knowledge. Very seldom do I read for encouragement and I need to do more of that. But I will admit, when I do come across these people, I mean, my hero, as I've told you before, is Corey Ten Boom. The more I read of her, it's astounding what she's like. Together, all these women in the concentration camps of Ravensbrook, 
and of Auschwitz and tell them that God sent the fleas to infest the barracks so that the guards would stay out and allow them to have Bible study and prayer and encourage one another. Now that's some great faith there. And then to look at those women in Ravensbrook that are suffering and dying of disease and to say to them, no matter how deep your despair, God's love is deeper still. But there's a point at which that, Bildad, it's great to hear, but there's a point at which it falls short, right? Now you think about this. I preached this sermon last night and I went home. God is sovereign. He's on the throne. He's involved, right? Now, I've shared with you that we have a family dog, Milo. Don't worry. You're not going to see his photo every other week. <laughs> this dog is important to my family. I need to tell you why. Because when I told my daughter, Sion, when we were in New Zealand, that we were leaving and coming back to the United States, she slammed the door and told me she would never speak to me again <laughs> until I convinced her that Milo was coming as well. Now, folks, I had to give up something that was very dear to me to afford Milo to come. I mean, he cost more than we did. We should have just put him on a seat in the airplane. It have been cheaper. <laughs> and it has always eased the pain for her because Milo's the one constant she's had in her life since she was a little girl, and she chose him. So I preached this sermon last night. I go home. I'm working on little details just to fine-tune it a bit. My wife comes screaming in the back door of our home. She never screams. I mean, she lives on an even kill. Good thing because I'm always up here. So she comes in and she says, Jeff, hurry. Milo's been bitten by a rattlesnake. So the family dog Milo gets bitten last night right on the schnoz by a rattlesnake. So my heart is pumping. Thank God my daughter Sion is not here this weekend. So Robin and I, we call the vets to try to find out where we're going to take Milo. Nobody has the, uh, the, the anti-venom. We have to go to Pasadena. We get there. The doctor says, you know, this is a big bite, a lot of venom. We don't know if he's going to make it. So I'm sitting out there. Here's what happened to me all last night. I don't sleep a wink, okay? So I cannot be held responsible for anything I say today. <laughs> because I'm sitting there, lying there thinking, how am I going to tell my little girl she's come to a new place and her dog is dead? You ever prayed for an animal? Well, let me tell you what I did last night. God, I don't know how you're involved in all this, but let me tell you what happened. On the way to the hospital, I'm in the car, and it's like, have you ever talked to yourself? It's like the bad self, which is usually me all the time, the good self started to speak, right? And the good self said, hey, what about your sermon last night? God is sovereign. He's always in control. And I said, shut up. <laughs> don't give me that stuff. I'm mad right now. And what you do that right? What I, I didn't want any kind of platitude. I didn't want somebody to say to me, God will never take you where his grace will never sustain you. I don't care about that right now. I just want my dog better. I want somebody to go to God and represent me and say, wait a minute, God, perhaps there's a better way to go about doing what you're trying to do in this guy's life. That's what Job says to build that. In Job chapter 9, verse 33, after he's told Eliphaz, teach me and I will hold my peace and cause me to understand. And then to build that, he says, if only there were somewhere, someone to arbitrate between God and me. My friends are useless. Somebody go to God on my behalf and say, hey, let's talk about what we're doing here. Maybe there's a better way to achieve this goal. By the way, my wife just called 10 minutes ago and said he's fine. And then the third person comes to Job. His name is Zophar. He's the youngest, therefore he's the rudest. Because when you haven't lived life long enough, you've got nothing to say about pain. That's just the reality. 
And Zophar says to him, oh, this is, this is really good. Job chapter 11, verse 12. He says, it is more likely, Job, that a donkey will give birth to a human being than for you to listen to wisdom. <laughs> Great friend. I read that. Now, what's going on here? Well, remember I told you about my friend Ali Mooney in New Zealand who does a lot of temperament analysis. And I like to hear her description of the sanguine personality. The sanguine personality is the person who goes to a party where there's 100 people. He finds somebody that will listen, and he talks about himself for 20 minutes. After 20 minutes, he says, okay, enough about me. What do you think about me? That's the sanguine personality. Zophar has made this whole thing about him. He's mad at Job because Job's pain has inconvenienced him. By the way, that's how you know who your real friends are. When you're hurting, do your friends run because it's inconvenient, or do they embrace you and help you through it? And Job, out of his frustration, says to his three friends, you know what? Before you guys came here, I had a lot of problems. Now that you're here, I got one more. When all of you die, wisdom's going to die with you. There'll be no more wisdom left in the world when you're gone. And he finally cries out to God and he says, okay, you're not going to give me an answer. That's evident. I'm not going to understand why I'm in all this pain. Then at least tell me this. When a man dies, will he live again? Just tell me that. After it's all over, is there something better on the other side? Now it's at that point that Job, as he humbles himself and he remains silent, that God starts to speak. And what God does here is amazing because he does not answer Job's question. Instead, you know what he does? He asks Job a series of 64 questions back to back to back to back. And here's what he says. Number one, where were you when I laid the earth's foundation? Tell me if you understand. Who marked off its dimensions? Surely you know. Do you sense the sarcasm? Think God can't be sarcastic? Have you journeyed to the springs of the sea or walked in the recesses of the deep? Have the gates of death been shown to you? What is the way to the abode of light? And where does darkness reside? Can you bring forth the constellations in their seasons? Who endowed the heart with wisdom and gave understanding to the mind? Do you know when the mountain goats give birth? Do you watch when the doe bears her fawn? What is God accomplishing here? Please stay with me. What God is doing in these questions is forcing Job to open up within his modest stock of certainties. He's forcing Job to open up within his modest stock of certainties. He says this to Job, Job, since you're the kind of man that can only believe in that which he understands comprehensively, exhaustly, and fully, then tell me something. Where were you when I laid the foundations of the world? Do you understand how the sun goes up and down in the sky? Do you understand the stars and the constellations? Do you understand how when a, a man and a woman come together in the beautiful union of marriage that a life is born, is conceived? Do you understand how... An animal in the wilderness gives birth to the young. Where were you when the sprawling mountains came into place? Surely you know, Job. Do you know what God is saying to Job? He's saying, okay, Job, is that the way you want it? There's a thousand things that happen every day in your life, Job, for which you do not have a comprehensive understanding that you readily accept and embrace and enjoy. You're not like Chicken Little. You don't run out every day and have to wonder, is the sky falling? But you don't know how it stays in its place yet you readily embrace and accept that it will every day. Job, God says, your pain is no different. You're not God. There's a point at which you're finite and I'm infinite. And Job, if I told you everything, you probably would not understand it anyway. You've been listening to Today with Jeff Vines. Thanks for joining us. 
Next time, we'll bring you the rest of this message from Pastor Jeff. God comes to Job as creator and designer. And in the same way, he takes the chaos of the universe and brings beauty and design. He takes the chaos of your life and brings beauty and design out of it. Even if you don't understand it comprehensively, the reason is, is because you're not God. That's where the step of faith is required. If that were it, that wouldn't encourage me that much. You can listen to more messages like this. Just search for Today with Jeff Vines wherever you get your podcasts. You make me Today. 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 Today with Jeff Fines. Thanks for taking time to listen to this audio on demand from Vision Christian Media. To find out more about us, go to vision.org.au.